care about these issues because there's so much as humans that we face that's not fully in our control, whether it's a natural disaster or an outbreak of disease. And I think that our best chance of facing the challenges that come our way is through collaboration and being able to work with each other. I think that's really the superpower that we have as humans, is our ability to come together, to tap into each of our skills, knowledge, unique perspective, and bring that together to solve the problems we face. And conflict, when we become divided into different groups, I think it takes away our superpower. Um, we turn away from each other instead of towards each other. And instead of addressing the challenges we face, we cause more harm to each other. And I think that violence between groups and, and violence based on people that, that targets people based on their identity is some of the most preventable type of harm um, that's out there um, because it's so it's such a human problem. It's so fully in our control to do something about. Um, and I just think it's it's all of our our problem and our challenge to solve. Hello and welcome to the Civic Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Lori McNeil, founding director of the Civic Hacker Network and the Civic Hacker Summit. The mission of the Civic Hacker Network is to create and empower a globally connected community of people who are using data and technology to create positive social change. We do this by equipping and empowering people to move their change-making projects forward. We also amplify the work our membership is doing by providing a platform through which civic hackers can publicize their projects, collaborate, and get the resources and support they need. Our motto is, Problems Have Solutions. Civic Hacker podcast listeners are on a learning journey with me to explore the vast array of solutions that are emerging in various forms in communities all around the world, and to partake of the feast of knowledge available from people who are leading the way in using data and tech for positive impact. The interviews and talks that this podcast series centers on are recorded during Civic Hacker Summit events. The summits are online events where a specially curated, invitation-only group of experts and emerging changemakers share stories, strategies, tips, and tactics for making an impact with data and technology. In this episode, I'm excited to share the conversation I had with the founder and executive director of an organization that merges research and practice to prevent identity-based violence and other other forms of group-targeted harm. The organization is Over Zero, and the founder is Rachel Brown, a recognized expert on confronting hateful and dangerous rhetoric. And for the past decade, she has worked to address the role of communication in violent conflict. Rachel is the author of Diffusing Hate, a strategic communication guide to counteract dangerous speech and a former fellow at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide. Rachel's work has been profiled at conferences, events, and publications globally, including on CBS and at the United States Institute for Peace, United States Air Force Academy, UN Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, the Harvard Institute of Politics, and the Stavros Niarchos 
Foundation International Conference on Philanthropy. Rachel previously founded and was the CEO of Sisi Niamani Kenya, an internationally recognized organization that pioneered new strategies to build local capacity for violence prevention and civic engagement in Kenya. This work has been profiled in a documentary film, articles, academic reports, and global conferences. Rachel has also provided training and strategy support to organizations and programs in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Africa, and consulted for organizations including the World Bank, DAI, and Internews. When normal political or social conflict gets out of hand or even violent, we tend to want to look back and try to figure out what could have been done to prevent such a breakdown in societal relationships. Rachel is someone who's been in the trenches working on how communities can get ahead of the threat of violence in tense times. In my conversation with Rachel, we talk about the importance of building and mobilizing relationship infrastructures and resilience networks to prevent and respond to violence. When should you get worried? Well, you're going to want to hear Rachel's response to that question from me. (laughs) And you may be surprised to learn how digital monitoring can play a role in prevention. We talk about how OverZero's approach to communication technology and their focus differs from previous CVE, or Countering Violent Extremism strategies. We discuss the relationship between communication and conflict and how harmful patterns can be recognized. And Rachel also shares some specific strategies and resources that will help you find the pattern specific to your community and how to mobilize group action against identity-based violence. The discussion you're about to hear right now is timely and important. Thanks for listening in. Here's Rachel Brown of Over Zero. So Rachel, you know, thank you so much for being here. I'm, you know, so, um, your work is so important. And I think, sadly, um, you know, even since when I met you, um, I think that was before January. So, you know, even more so today, I think folks are probably realizing um, the importance of what you do. So do you want to um, tell us about Over Zero and you know, how you came to start this organization and, and, and what you do? Great. Um, so Over Zero works to prevent and to build resilience to um, identity-based violence and other forms of political violence. Um, and we, when we say create resilience to, what we actually mean um, is really an approach that looks at some of the risk factors, some of the early warning indicators that there is an increased likelihood of identity-based or other forms of political violence, and to be able to push back and withstand some of those risk factors and pressures um, in that direction, as well as to mitigate um, the impacts and prevent cycles of violence. And I really came to this work Um, really for the last 10 years, I've existed in the world that looks at the relationship between communication and conflict. And I don't mean communication, just the words that I say. I mean, everything from the structure of how information spreads, how rumors spread, 
um, to, to the messengers who's carrying which types of content and information and who's listening to them, the different audiences that the communication um, is reaching. And then of course, I do mean the content. We know that there are patterns of communication um, that increase the risk of violence because we see these patterns over and over again before, during, and after large-scale violence. And these include things like portraying a group of people as a threat. These include things like silencing those um, who disagree or want to stand up and promote a different path forward. And so we look at that really early indicator for violence and we try and peel back the layers. If this is the tip of the iceberg, what's going on under the surface? How are emotions like fear being mobilized? How are things like social norms and social pressures being weaponized to silent those who might um, dissent. Um, and, and really, what does all of this teach us about what we can do when we start to see these patterns emerge in our society, when we start to see them rising to the surface? Um, what does this tell us uh, about how we need to act and how we can do so effectively? Um, and how does this help, help us mobilize a really diverse group of, of leaders and um, organizations and individuals to take action. So as an organization, we do a lot of work um, on the research side, understanding neuroscience, social behavioral psychology, um, sociology, everything that can teach us how these dynamics work. Um, but then on the programming side, we connect that, we bridge that research with practice by working with organizations and leaders across communities, providing them with tools and resources, learning with and from them, um, and really coaching, advising, and supporting them to take action. And you know, when you're working with um, different organizations and leaders, you know, a lot of us kind of look around at the landscape, and you know, you can sometimes identify which leaders are on board, you know, with fostering a different kind of environment or a different kind of communication. But especially in your work abroad, um, you know, how easy or challenging is it um, you know, when you did, did your work in Kenya, for example, like how did you find those leaders that would be effective or you know, help them to be effective? Um, and then you know, nowadays in some areas, <laughs> there are many leaders uh, who really seem like they're not interested in wielding their influence for improving you know the quality of communications and relations between groups yeah so this is something i've actually thought about a lot so when i went and, and I, I lived and worked in kenya from 2010 to 2014 so this was in the aftermath of 2007 2008 when kenya experienced uh, post-election violence following the 2007 2008 presidential election that claimed the lives of over a thousand people left hundreds of thousands displaced. Um, and Kenya had experienced some level of violence in the past, but nothing like this, nothing to the scale, um, to the breadth of geographies and the, the level of, of damage and harm and loss of life that was caused. And what was really interesting is that what this meant in Kenya was that people had a really immediate understanding of the costs of that type of violence. They had experienced it directly or knew stories or had seen images of what it meant for things to get that bad. Everything from the cost of living increasing to losing a loved one, 
um, to having to rebuild entire neighborhoods to people having to leave their homes and remain remaining displaced. And so I think in part for that reason, this is something I thought about a lot. When I was in Kenya, there were leaders who were from all different communities across the different dividing lines where conflict had occurred. People that really felt strongly about their political party. For example, this was um, violence occurred, occurred along um, um, ethnic and um, political lines that were wrapped together. And so you had people that that so strongly sat on one side of a divide, but also really um, had seen the cost of a certain type of politics, a certain type of rhetoric, um, and were willing to push back on it even within their own um, groups. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually relatively easy in Kenya to find leaders who said, we've experienced what violence costs and we're, we don't wanna have it again. And so in the different communities where I worked, we'd have faith leaders from different faiths. Again, we'd have people from different ethnic communities, political party affiliations, young people, old people, um, a really diverse team of leaders that we'd work with in different communities um, who were working together. And I really do think it's that they understood the level of risk and the cost of what was at stake and what could happen if it was even worse. At the same time, um, in the US, I think it was a different experience, right? You had some went, went just working here and talking and working with leaders and we work a lot in a demand-based way. So we're seeing who's interested in working and also where their communities we know are important. Um, and we can identify some leaders that think that this is important, but don't really know how to use their platform to take action. Um, and so it's a lot of work to build relationships. But what I will say, um, and I've seen this shift over time in the US is that there, there was a difference in whether people really understood what was at stake here um, and that it can be hard to activate and engage people um, if it goes against the incentives of a political preference or something like that, um, if they don't truly understand um, or feel what that cost might be. And so I would say in our work, a lot of what we do um, is work where there are people that want to work on this issue set and want support, but we also try and broaden the lens. And, and I think to your point that there are leaders that are not using their platforms to create helpful communication and play, in fact, are actively using them to stoke division, um, violence to portray groups as a threat. I think it can be easy to see those two buckets of people as the only people that could be engaged. Mm -hmm. So part of what we do is try to broaden the lens and say, there's actually a, a lot of ways to break down and think about audiences and partners. Who are the people that are really important for how information spreads in a community, but that might, might see this as political and therefore might not wanna be engaged. And if they actually see it as a problem of intergroup conflict or violence, or risks to democracy, they might be engaged. Is that somebody that works at the local paper? Is that a local business person who has a stake in the community, but, but doesn't see this as their issue? So we also look at who, where are their centers of influence and gravity and information in a community that you can go approach and talk to and, and that might, they're not actively using their platform for harm. They're not actively engaged in working to prevent violence prevent group targeted harm, um, but but they have a stake in the community and, and if invited and, and if given a way to use their specific skills platform, um, right, to contribute, they might be able to do that. And I think um, 
I'll just say this one more thing. One of the things that happens when there are loud voices promoting conflict and promoting violence and creating a sense of threat is that other voices go quiet. And this is a huge risk. To me, that silence is the thing that we have to be so wary of and the things that, that's concerned me um, early on in this country when we started seeing some of this rhetoric. It's not just the rhetoric, it's, it's the lack of pushback. And so I think what we have to remember and what I've learned from talking to different groups and people is that just because someone's silent doesn't mean they agree. So can you find those people that say I'm uncomfortable with what I'm hearing, but I don't know how to push back without becoming the target of attacks or things like that? And can you help them be part of a community, um, connect with other leaders like them so they can they can take action together? Yeah, and so, you know, the for the person who you do find, um, like, is has it been your experience that for some of these folks, like, that scariness of, okay, I can become the target here, or, you know, this isn't my issue, so I, <laughs> I don't want to stick my neck out. Um, you know, when you guys come in and, and help the communities kind of, you know, find these people and support them, is it really, like, providing, almost like providing, like, a third group, like, you know, don't worry, that kind of um, social aspect of it, it's like, if they are worried about being out of, a group uh, because of they, they spoke up or you know just kind of out there alone having to survive um, because they um, now you know are going to be a target you're kind of able to help them have a place to land I guess and does that yeah. really is that part of what helps people get over that <laughs> hurdle of um, resistance yeah and I think it's really human like we can all think about um, I often ask people just to think about middle school, if you want to understand some of these dynamics and sitting in a cafeteria, what would it take to, you know, your friends are all saying some, you know, musical artist is really cool and you want to say, no, I think they're not cool, right? Now, for some people that's comfortable, for most people that's not. What would it take to do something that you know was going to get you told you can't hang out with us anymore, right? I, these social dynamics, like the way we operate is to be really sensitive. We're really wired for belonging. It's really hard and scary um, to do things that could get us cast out. And for some people, it might be that they're worried about their job, right? That their status, their relationships, um, you know, they're worried about what it's going to mean for their kid. There, there's so many reasons that it can feel scary and lonely and it's hard, right? Maybe I wanna do something, but I don't really know what's the right thing to do. Or maybe I wanna do something, but I don't feel particularly political. I don't wanna be labeled as partisan at all, right? So how can I speak from my role as a business owner or a veteran or whatever it is that is a role or an identity that feels comfortable for me? And, and so giving people those ways that they can speak up in ways that are authentic and true to themselves without um, having to, step uh, and, and taking it out of the lens of just sort of politics as usual, but no, we're facing a real threat. This is actually, um, it's not about partisan politics. It's about democracy. It's about preventing violence. It's about preventing groups from being targeted for violence. The more you can create these um, other spaces where people can activate parts of their identity that are already important for them, or they can find belonging somewhere. Um, I do think that's really important because I think, um, it's hard as, as a rule for people, it tends to be hard to do things on your own. And we see that when we look at extreme instances of violence, um, when we look at resistance in the face of genocide or mass atrocity even, you do have individuals 
um, not just leaders, just, and I think we can all be leaders in moments like this. So you do have individuals that stand up. They're really courageous. They save their neighbor. They do things at great risk to themselves. Um, but that's, that's always going to be some small portion of the population. But where we see groups come together, the Muslim community in Rwanda, for example, activated in their identity as Muslims, decided that they weren't going to participate in the genocide and they were going to rescue victims. And they collaborated and did it at a large scale. So I think that finding that community, finding that ability to do, um, giving people that space where they can be acting in community with other people really matters. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I like that you talk about like middle school, right? You know, we think about, you know, something, something simple in a way, like, as you're looking back on it as an adult, like of, you know, being able to understand, yeah, that's, you know, it almost feels like kind of trivial. It's like, come on, middle school me, you can speak up. <laughs> like there, There's going to be other friends in your future, but yet, you know, but yeah. in the larger world, um, you know, as yeah. we are looking at what's going on, you know, as the same dynamic, but playing out with a lot higher stakes yeah. and, you know, real risk of, of harm, you know, to different groups. And, um, but yet, you know, if we really just understand it at its basic level, it's, you know, um, you know, it seems like it should be something so simple to overcome, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's human wiring, right? And yes. it's like, um, and it's, it's, I think middle school is an interesting example because most people are open to thinking about how they would act there, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, I love you, you brought up that point that you look back and you think, come on, middle school me, why couldn't I act differently? And I think that that one of the things to remember is actually think about what would it feel like for this person in the moment yeah. to do something that breaks with their group, even if they think it's right, even if they feel it think about yourself in that, in a moment that would feel really uncomfortable. Similarly, what would you need to overcome it? Um, we know that even thinking about another group where, you know, if you're going to have a discomfort for not taking this action and, and, and be accepted for taking it can matter. So, yeah. so having that alternative group really matters. And I think it's important to also remember that, that these are really human dynamics that we're seeing playing out. And the more we can find the places in ourselves where we can understand how they're happening, the more I think we can find ways um, to intervene. Yeah. And, you know, when, when should communities, you know, start to get concerned? So you mentioned like, you know, there are definitely um, patterns and things that we've observed over and over again, which must be kind of frustrating to be a, someone who's, you know, kind of an expert at observing these things and like it's like you see clearly almost like oh that's the thing that we have we know about and it's happening and nobody seems to realize that it's the same um but anyway so what are some of those indicators and and markers and what can communities um look for and then you know i do wonder about like when it's when it is too late um you know when someone is using their platform for um, fostering division, you know, it, it almost seems like that same person couldn't change what they're saying and fix anything, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so yeah, like how could, you know, what's on the prevention side that we are gonna watch for in our communities and maybe even use data, you know, use some digital monitoring, I think um, could come into play. And then, you know, when do we, 
need to be really concerned because <laughs> sometimes it's just people being middle schoolers on the internet. Yeah, I mean, but even people being middle schoolers on the internet can be really harmful. And I would say that we should be concerned now um, mm. and we should be concerned years ago um, because the patterns of speech that we're seeing are patterns that serve to divide, to create a really clear boundary around an us and a them, and ultimately to justify harm or justify doing things outside the bounds of, you know, what we've agreed upon as um, our system of governance as democracy, for example. Um, and ultimately, you know, sort of the ultimate rejection of that is the um, use of force to try and um, to try and run the system with force rather than through the institutions that we have set. And you saw that on January 6th. So um, I think that, that we should all be concerned right now and that we all need to own this problem right now and this challenge right now um, and think about where we're positioned to do something about it. So at the sort of macro level, that's what I will say. Um, in terms of the patterns of speech and communication that repeat, I mentioned some of them, but we can pay attention to how an us and a them is created. Um, we should be concerned when a very rigid boundary is created around an us. And this often happens through creating an external threat. So groups are targeted as being some sort of an existential threat, a threat to our way of life, a threat to our women and children. Um, there's this, this threat protection self-defense narrative that's activated. And then there's the idea of guilt. This group has already done horrible things. They've already committed some sort of horrible crime or you know, you'll see an example of one person committing a particularly heinous crime and it says this whole group is responsible in their essence, they're guilty of this type of behavior, they need to be punished. And you'll see dehumanizing language um, in an extreme comparing people to animals directly, but this is ubiquitous. Um, you think about the language of swarms of people that often gets used in immigration coverage or um, narrative, you don't talk about people as swarms. So we need to be aware of those patterns and and we also need to be aware of how an us is constructed, right? The idea of an us deserving of protection, the idea that there is no alternatives to violence, to, um, to these harmful actions and the targeting of people within a group that are standing up to say, no, we wanna go, we think that this can be solved through the systems at play, we think, right? So um, that we call that the targeting of within group moderates, not right, left moderate, but moderating against violence. And so that silences voices within a group. So mm -hmm. all of those patterns we can see. Um, and then at the community level, I think it's really important to ask, how is that playing out in our community? Are there loud voices carrying this type of narrative? Are there people pushing back in a healthy way? Are there other voices going silent? We should always be worried when we see people disengaging or becoming silent on this, on this issue set. Um, are there actual threat of force from violent groups. There's a ton of different data sets and you mentioned monitoring. I think that there's a lot to be done with. There's a lot of groups from Bridging Divides Initiative to DFR Lab. There's a ton of groups out there that are doing really great monitoring that um, communities can use. But I think that on the response side, the most important thing is to figure out who are the different types of leaders, organizations, individuals with their own skills and knowledge that wanna um, prevent violence in a community that want to, even if there's an instance of violence or of threats or intimidation, be able to respond both proactively and then in the aftermath in a way that prevents further violence, further harm from happening. Building those 
we call it a relational infrastructure, building that set of relationships of people that are committed to shared values and norms. And that's a much bigger tent than people working on a particular issue area or another. That's really important. That's what's going to enable you to address the broader dynamics that are at play, to set a vision, to set values for the community, to give people that space to activate within and to be able to mobilize um, prevention and response as needed. And that's about identifying leaders that are deeply committed, but also those connections to leaders that reach different parts of the community or have different skills, knowledge, and resources. So I think that that's what I would say right now is, is A, we should be concerned. B, there are a ton of resources out there for monitoring. And I'm happy to compile the ones I know about and share them in case there's a, a space to share aside this yeah. alongside the interview. And then mobilize with relationships, build those relationships, build those communication channels. And then there are some best practices for how to proactively communicate. And you can think about all the platforms that are available to you, whether it's local radio, newspaper, um, social, whatever, social media, face-to-face -face, um, or virtual um, types of events and things like that to build reach and the community. So, um, so yeah, I would say then engaging this sort of um, network building, we call them resiliency networks um, and best practices for response. But, um, but there's a ton of resources out there depending on the exact needs of a community. Yeah, there's so many things in there. Like I'm panicking a little bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you see my panic face. Um, <laughs> Like I'm, because my I'm pretty sure I know politicians. It's probably very common for at least in the U.S. in campaign language that the creation of us, the defining of you know, kind of the teams, right, um, is just part of um, the U.S. politics, unfortunately. <laughs> and I think even the representative for, for where I live, I'm pretty sure his slogan is always like he is he's one of us, like. Mm. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, I'm listening to this. I'm like, oh God. <laughs> so I am. Well, it's, it is important to remember in the extreme, right? Part of what happens is that it, it's not just that there is, like, there's us in them all the time. Like, we all have all these different social identities, right? I'm from Baltimore. I'm an Orioles fan. I'm a woman. I have all these parts of my identity that let me connect with different people in different ways but it's when it's a rigid boundary. Anyone who is not part of this group is other, right? So this is what it means to be part of us, often defined by some sort of a stickier characteristic, something like um, race, religion, but nowadays we're seeing this being defined really on political affiliation too here. That's become treated more like in a fixed identity, the, the way the fixed identities are treated. But, um, but it's, that, it's that rigid creation of the us and it's the idea of them as threatening in their, and, and sharing some sort of an essence. And it's the use of that to justify actions that are um, inherently move us towards violence, whether that's saying we can't just, we can't trust our democratic institutions. We need to take other action or we need to, um, uh, you know, sort of pushing for, um, for ways to undermine our existing processes, for example, voting or to make it, um, things like or that, um, or violence. Yeah. Yes. Do you yeah. see what, what you're seeing now with people pushing against like, um, you know, mask mandates and vaccine requirements for schools? I mean, 
thinking about what you were uh, saying earlier about that um, defense and protection uh, mechanism, like, you know, the people who are like, you know, I am protecting my child from the state who would um, require this, like, is that, yeah, what's your take on what you're seeing right now in this well, it's interesting. situation? Yeah, no, so, so, so much, the patterns that I was talking about, con, like the study of that comes from atrocity prevention, right? And looking, so it's really looking at when it's like portraying a specific group as a threat and a specific group as needing to mobilize. But so much of the, the, the sort of patterns there tap into things that, that are, we're going to hear all the time, like I need to protect my child, I need to protect my child from a disease, or I need to protect my child from falling down the stairs from, you know, like, like, like the desire to protect is something that we see in a lot of innocuous ways. So, but protection narratives are really, really powerful and threat narratives are really, really powerful. So if people truly believe that there's a threat and they're, they're mobilizing to protect, you would see that same sort of potency. I think that where we're seeing the similarity is that we're seeing in some of these spaces where you're seeing a lot of disinformation about COVID and about the vaccine and things like that, it's being used to create that broader sense of threat mm. and that broader protection narrative that does feed into some of that group-based, identity-based um, pieces of this. And you're also seeing mobilization that's not always staying peaceful, right? And so I think what's, what's um, interesting in this moment is that some of that, the, the COVID narratives are being really used to fuel some of these broader narratives that have already been set about this us and them and the protection. And I do think the other thing to remember with COVID and, um, you know, we saw this in data that came out, I think it's really, we did a little study um, in spring 2020 of looking at how would we expect a pandemic to influence dangerous narratives. Mm. And, um, and, you know, it's really important to remember that when you have a threat and when you have because some of the dehumanization that's often used or some of the threats that you can see throughout history are groups being scapegoated for a disease groups yeah. being compared to things like lice etc so we've obviously seen that with targeting of um api communities etc with covid and i think that um that when there's just this actual threat that's out there it can be used to say we all need to come together because we're facing a disease that doesn't care your background or who you are, or what group you identify with, or what group you know you're seen as. You, you society is going to say that you're part of its disease, um, but unfortunately, I think what we've seen is that it's been used to strengthen some of the existing narratives and divisions. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um. It's a wild time. <laughs> so what are, you know, not to be all doom and gloom, like tell us about, um, you know, some of your, I guess, favorite success stories. Um, you know, I definitely think that people should hear more about um, the success of your work in Kenya and what the team was able to achieve there. Um, but, you know, do you have any other cases before we talk more about that one? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of, in our, first of all, I would say we've seen a lot of people um, over the last years um, really take action together. One of my favorite stories comes out of Ohio, a partner organization that we work with, Faith in Public Life. 
Um, we had worked with them on preparing some, some rapid response. And this was years ago. This was, time is a blur, but this was definitely pre-2020. Um, they unfortunately had a local mosque um, that was being targeted. Um, somebody identified that there was this um, leader of sort of uh, not that official hate group that was mobilizing people to protest with weapons outside of the mosque on Ramadan. And because they found out they were able to proactively mobilize a network of interfaith leaders to stay at, to show up. They were able to coordinate with the local mosque, ask what they wanted um, and work together to make a plan and then mobilize this group of interfaith leaders that had already, again, been committing to a set of values around this, been committing to take action together. If ever there was a threat or an incident, they were able to surround the mosque with peaceful signs and arrive before the other group showed up. And then, um, the group showed up, they had to stay across the street, um, and eventually they went away and people were able to come to prayers. But I think that, that people showing up for each other, I think something we talk about is really important is that I think some of these issues have become top of mind for more people due to the public rhetoric than they maybe have before. Um, but there are communities that have been targeted and experiencing um, this type of violence and harm for a very long time um, and not uh, both in our present and in more extreme versions in our not too long gone history. And I think it's really important that, um, that leaders from those communities be part of these types of local networks, that their voices be pretty central and that the lessons that they've learned, the, the, um, the sort of strategies that they've used and built over the years um, be really learned from. But I also think what's really important is that, you know, we saw an increase in hate violence for years before we saw January 6th. We saw, you know, as, as a result of the rhetoric and hate violence is a type of political violence. It's meant to, um, you know, impact whether or not people feel like they can fully participate and be part of our social, political, cultural, economic life, civic life. Um, and so I think that it's really important that we don't miss those early warning signs that people that are doing work locally in communities are making sure to connect that, that they're connecting to, um, groups, um, of all different backgrounds and figuring out how together they're going to address this in their community. So that's one example. And, and I gave the example of the Muslim community in Rwanda, which is extraordinary and that it's pretty rare for a whole group of people. And, and I'm giving you an example from an extreme in part because I want people to know it's not too late. Like yeah. we're still upstream here. Um, yeah. And, and you, there's a beautiful example of the city of Tusla and Bosnia during the war there that actively didn't participate in the war and instead lived peacefully together, even when there was a lot of events that could have caused conflict. And in part, this is where people came together. They, they grounded themselves in their values. They, leaders came together. They set those social expectations for their community in a positive way and coordinate in the face of stressors. And I think that that's something that can be done um, in communities um, and that, that, that those types of connections should be done in communities now because there's no harm in doing it. If, if right. you know, if things don't get bad, it's amazing to have those relationships. You can use them to, um, to do positive work together. Um, I think it strengthens any community to have those relationships. Um, so, so yeah, there's a lot of historical examples to look at. And I gave one example from the US, but there are a ton of examples and we've worked with so many leaders um, who have, who really see this as their 
responsibility and are figuring out how they can use their unique platforms and voices. Um, and I, that gives me a lot of hope. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, what you were saying about that infrastructure, you know, and people like before things hit the fan, like there are people having um, experiences in communities that maybe, you know, no one hears about. Um, I, you know, we know for a fact, right, unreported um, incidents and things. And, you know, if, if leaders of those different communities are disparate from each other and not talking, that there's no um, connection, make those connections before there's suddenly a runaway problem. And, you know, you look back and you could have been talking and knowing about all of these uh, seemingly isolated incidents that really make a whole create a whole, I guess, culture and norms um, that can fuel something far worse. But I did, you know, one of the um, entry points, I guess, for me, uh, when I was first doing research um, for the previous summit, um, and looking at, you know, how, how do people use, you know, data and tech, right, and for whatever issue that they're, you know, concerned about in their communities. And I did come across the, um, counteracting violent extremism work mm. of um, a person whose name I will not remember in this moment but I was just like whoa you know like even in you know looking at like even this like you've got some people out here um, using their programming skills like really being um, innovative and, and curious about how to disrupt um, networks and or even discover them and um, but you know there's you know, that was then, and there's been learnings. And so I was curious about, you know, what your um, communication technology kind of um, focus, like how that differs from some of the things that, you know, were part of the CV, CVE um, era and, and work, and how you're seeing that change. Like, are they learning some of the lessons that your approach can can provide yeah um it's such an interesting question i think about um i think the, that a lot of cv approaches are focused on the extremes and focused on people that that are for some reason or another identified as being at risk of being recruited or have been recruited into extreme groups and that um they're trying to recruit out i would say our approach is more looking at what creates the permissive environment more broadly in a society um, and what starts to make the extreme less extreme, right? When, when have the mainstream starts to, to move towards that. And so when we're looking, I think about the work in Kenya, for example, what we were saying is how is information spreading here? And at the time that I was there, it was cell phones and it was forwarded text messages. Now it's a lot more social media, which is more complex. Um, but we were sort of asking, how is certain type of communication or stories or narratives getting traction and spread? And what can we do to sort of compete with that when those are, um, when that's communication, that's a rumor that might cause violence or, or things like that. So I would say we're taking the broader approach. Um, to your point on the, the CVE space, I think that there's a ton of lessons that have been learned in that space, maybe some that are still being learned. I think some of the early challenges were very securitized because the CVE space emerged um, as a very well-funded space right after 9-11. I think a lot of um, the interventions, a, a lot of the challenges that there's 
often a very securitized approach and that it targeted very specific communities. So it targeted Muslim communities in particular and ended up um, causing a lot of harm within those communities. Um, and so I think that that's something I've heard discussed um, and, and, and that sort of securitized lens of the approach. Um, and I think it's something to be really aware of um, um, moving forward. Um, I think there's probably too much to say about that than the amount of time that we have, <laughs> we have left, but I guess I would say that my personal opinion is that when we look, for example, at where we're at in the U.S. right now, there is a problem of, of extremist groups, and you can look, you know, at the spread of militia groups and things like that, um, and, you know, the groups that showed up on January 6th. And that's certainly something that needs to be addressed. And there's a ton of groups doing work both online and offline on that front. Um, I also think that we have to ask ourselves why um, the some of the sort of narratives and ideologies that are being promoted by these groups are taking hold. And we have to consider it a risk when we see people in positions of authority, whether politicians or media hosts, um, providing a platform for those views. Um, and so I think that it's not just addressing the extremist groups themselves, it's asking why is there a permissive environment for these groups to thrive? Um, how is it that the sort of edge of the rabbit hole towards the extremism or the disinformation has moved, you know, so close to what we might consider mainstream? Um, and, and what can we do about that? And then I think for the sort of interventions that focus on people that might be vulnerable to recruitment or be within those groups, there's a range of approaches um, that really try and understand what's what's going on with those processes and how they can be interrupted, how people can be re rehabilitated, et cetera. But um, so, yeah, so important. <laughs> and, you know, thank you for your work. Thank you for, you know, being someone who studied this and like looked at it in its face and said, you know what, we're going to solve this, not, you know, turning away and, and hiding because, you know, the world needs <laughs> those problem solvers. And that's our motto around here. Problems have solutions. So um, thank you very much for sharing, you know, your experience and expertise with us. And do you have any, you know, we are going to have a bunch of links, um, uh, where you can learn more about Rachel and see what she's been doing. We're going to watch a movie. <laughs> and um, uh, Do you have anything, Rachel, that you uh, want to shout out or announce before we let everybody go? No, we'll share the links. I just want to appreciate you, Lori, for everything that you're doing and to everyone that's watching and engaging in this. Um, I just, I, I think it's such an important moment for people to to see themselves as part of the solution and to see um, these challenges as their challenges to solve. And so it's just exciting to know that there's a network of people that's engaged and um, looking to get involved and put their skills to use. So I just wanna express gratitude um, to you, Lori, and to the broader network. Thank you. Hey, listeners. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of Civic Hacker Network, which is a nonprofit fiscally hosted by the Open Collective Foundation, a 501c3. Why am I telling you this? Because it means that when you support this podcast with a donation of any amount, 
depending on your tax code situation, uh, your donation could be tax deductible. Yay! So, go to civic-hackers.org slash nonprofit to donate today. And a huge shout out to those who have already donated or are supporting us through their paid membership in the Civic Hacker Network. I appreciate you very much. Round of applause. Hats off to you. And I invite anyone who is able and so inclined to join your support with theirs by going to civic-hackers.org slash nonprofit and you'll see the different ways that you can contribute right there on the page. I appreciate Rachel so much for generously sharing her wisdom and research with the Summit audience and now you. Many thanks to her, and I hope that you take something you heard today about counteracting identity-based violence and put it to work in your life, your work, and your community. Over Zero calls on all of us to use communication and communication technology to unite rather than divide, and they provide some great resources and strategies for free on their website to help us out with that. So please do check out the links we've included in the notes portion of this episode's description, as well as uh, the episode page that's going to be at civic-hackers.org. You'll just look in the nav under the resources section and you'll be able to click on the podcast and see the um, page corresponding to this episode with the notes there. You may have caught a reference to a documentary film during the intro and the conversation. Back in December, Civic Hacker Network hosted a virtual film screening event of uh, Peace in Our Pockets. It's a documentary about some of the work Rachel and colleagues did in Kenya to prevent violence around their presidential election. As you might know already, uh, Kenya is historically one of the most politically stable and prosperous countries in Africa, Yet following their disputed 2007 presidential election, horrible violence erupted. The documentary Peace in Our Pockets covers the time leading up to the the, uh, following election and reminds us that innovation and technology in the hands of committed individuals can make a positive difference. At that screening we hosted, we were honored to have Caleb Gachuhi join us. He was one of the organizers featured in the film and a former uh, CC Ni Amani colleague of Rachel's. She introduced Caleb to me as an all-around incredible global leader in the space of technology, peacebuilding, and civic engagement. You'll be hearing more from us about his work in the future, but if you want to stream the film, we will also have that link available for you in this episode's show notes. Now, if you're a member of the Civic Hacker Network, keep an eye out for an email with another opportunity for you to watch this wonderful film just in case you missed it back in December, or you just like to see it again. And y'all, membership is free, so if you're not already a member, what are you doing? Have you no fear of missing out? No tienes FOMO? <laughs> Moving on, your voice is part of the solution, friends. And I'd love to hear from you about if and how you are contributing to peacemaking within your community. 
you can drop me a line via email at Lori, which is spelled L-O-R-I, at civic-hackers.org, or leave a voice message by heading to civic-hackers.org slash pod. To wrap up things with gratitude today, let's stay on topic. When we talk about violence prevention, my mind also goes to the ideas and practices associated with nonviolence resistance. And when I think about nonviolence, I can't help but appreciate those who, in the face of division, conflict, and political forces promoting group-based harm, chose a nonviolent path to creating change. So during the period from January 30th to April 4th, many people around the world observed the 64-day long season of nonviolence, an observance now in its 25th year. The season for nonviolence marks the 64 days between the anniversaries of the deaths of Mohandas Gandhi on January 30th and Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th. I'm thankful for leaders past and present who have the courage to embrace new ways to move forward with their vision for a less divided world. Shout out to those builders of civic tech who are working on communication tools that encourage peaceful dialogue, discourage harmful speech, and help us humans to keep our superpower of connection, as Rachel called it. Your work is important and appreciated. I have the privilege of producing this podcast from an incredibly gorgeous area in far Northern California, and it is with gratitude in this moment that I acknowledge the Wintu people, the original stewards of the beautiful lands in and around Redding, California, their ancestral and present home. Never to be forgotten, I'm grateful for you, listener. Your feedback is welcome because it helps me improve this podcast and better serve the network. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you haven't already, please do me a favor and rate and review the show. Your ratings and reviews help other people discover this podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Civic Hacker Network is on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can claim your free membership to the Civic Hacker Network to get an invitation to join us on Slack. You can find all of the links on our website, civic-hackers.org. I'm Lori McNeil, wishing you all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker Podcast. Problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of the Civic Hacker Network. The Civic Hacker Network is a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. Join the network for free at civic-hackers.org.